Today on the show, we're talking about a 15-year mortgage. Welcome to Simple Money Solutions Podcast, your path to financial independence through deliberate lifestyle choices. My name's Courtney, I'm joined with Trevor, and thank you so much for tuning in today as we talk about the concept of a 15-year mortgage. Yeah, a 15-year mortgage, it sounds pretty extreme, and we're going to get to some of the meat of the, the, the concept in, in this episode. So I, I would caution listeners to, you know, don't be alarmed. I, I've got something to back this up. So Trevor, yes, we're a personal finance podcast, but why, why are we doing this episode today? So I think a 15-year mortgage is, so if you want to achieve early financial independence, and I, so I'm saying, you know, before the age of 65, you want to you wanna be financially independent at, at, I'll say, midlife, you need to be targeting a 15-year mortgage because the math just doesn't work. If, if you're going to spend 25 years paying off your mortgage, that, that's going to put you behind on, on some other goals and aspirations financially that, again, if, if you want to achieve early financial independence, in my mind, it's the only way, and it's a great wealth-building tool. Uh, let me ask you, Courtney, what, why, why, what's your perspective on this topic? Well, I'm obviously in my early 20s. I don't have a mortgage. So, I mean, at first glance, this episode might seem a little bit removed from maybe where I am in life right now. But actually, this I'm really, really excited about this episode because for any of our listeners, too, who haven't purchased a home before, I think I think this is something that maybe you need to hear and that I'm excited to learn about through what you have to say today, Trevor, because, I mean, I, I just wanted to highlight, I was when I was doing readings for this uh, this episode, there, this one article by Romana King, it's entitled, Should You Pay Off Your Mortgage Early? And I, I grew up my, my whole life thinking that the goal was to pay off your mortgage early. So it kind of blew me away when I found this article and it asked, should you? I mean, there there's in my mind there was no other option and and the big question in the first paragraph here is should you pay off your mortgage or invest the money instead and that concept just kind of blows my mind that that you can kind of trade one for the other so I really want to explore that today well the the idea of paying off mortgage early so if you talk to somebody in their 20s they would look at a you know a 15-year obligation that that's almost their whole life. So that seems like an eternity to someone in their twenties. If you ask someone in their who's twenty five to sign up for a twenty five year mortgage, that seems like a lifetime obligation. But I can assure you, when you get older, fifteen years seems like a pretty small window of time. In one of the other articles, this is actually just a heading in the article that I'm just going to mention here. It's called "Paying Off Your Mortgage Faster Can Pay Huge Dividends." It's by Tom McFeet. And one of the headings here is, so why isn't everyone doing that? And everyone doing that, meaning paying their mortgage off early. So I'm going to lean with two questions here. My first question in relation to um, this quote from Tong McFeet's article is, why 15 years? And the follow-up question is, why is 25 years the norm that we've come to accept? Well, 25 years is... is I'm going to say it's it's somebody's working career. So it's 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 somebody will have worked for 25 or 30 years in the course of their working, you know, traditional working lifespan. So the 25-year mortgage fits inside that window. So by the time you're retired or just before you're retired, you'd be done paying for your mortgage. So that's where I believe the 25 years came from. Now, the 15-year, that, why aren't more people doing that? Because it is... It's not easy. You know, it's challenging and it requires you to make some difficult decisions. It, it may be in, in some people's, you know, vocabulary, it would require sacrifice, short-term sacrifice for long-term rewards. And it, it's really hard to, to stick to a plan of, of you know, short-term sacrifices for long-term reward. Life can get in the way of that quite often and, and derail those plans. So my first thought of two is that as a young 20-year-old with with no significant amount of debt, 20 getting myself into a 25-year mortgage sounds insane and I would much rather jump into this shorter 15-year mortgage because obviously that's less number of years that I will be in debt for. 
Well, you need to position yourself. So to get into a 15-year mortgage, one thing is required is a, is a significant down payment. So that, that that's almost that that's not even a an, a debatable issue. So you need a significant down payment to even contemplate a 15-year mortgage. So and for somebody in their 20 who's 25, it sounds like a lifetime obligation. So the 15-year mortgage should look more appealing to, to a younger person, but it, I, I think the norm is 25 years. So in this episode, who exactly are we targeting? I mean, we mentioned, I mentioned earlier that I'm excited about this episode, but who else are we really trying to, to, to reach during this episode? So I'm going to say it's a pretty unique uh, cross-section of people. So it's for people, I would hope we're talking to people who are contemplating buying a house or somebody who already owns a house, already has a mortgage. It's it's not too late. But here's this, this scenario where I, I think you could sign up for a 15-year mortgage. So one is you don't live in one of Canada's most expensive real estate cities. So Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, maybe Ottawa, Calgary. So you don't live in one of those cities because I, I, I really believe a 15-year mortgage is pretty unrealistic in those type of real estate prices. So, so number two is you can't go all in on your mortgage and just, you know, forget about your retirement. So you need to be employed in somewhere where you have a some form of pension plan, be it a defined benefit pension plan where it's based on your years of service or a defined contribution plan where your employer matches your sort of contribution into a, a retirement fund. So you have to have some sort of retirement uh, planning in place. So so number one is you don't live in one of Canada's most expensive real estate cities. Two is you have a, a company, a pension plan of some some form. So number three is you want to retire or be financially independent before your age of 65. And that has to be important to you, not not just sort of a fringe aspiration. It has to be something you really want. So those three things would make you a prime candidate for a 15-year mortgage. And I think, again, either you, you're thinking about buying a house or you already have a mortgage. If you fit into that, I, I, I think a 15-year mortgage is very doable. And I, I'm glad you highlighted that this episode is for those who already have a mortgage too, because for each section section that we're going through, we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk to those who either who already have a mortgage, if it's 25 years, if it's 15, or those again who are looking to get into the housing market. So we're gonna talk to both segments as well. So Trevor, to give our listeners a little bit of perspective, can you tell them about your housing journey, just so they have a little bit of appreciation? Of, of where you are right now and where you've come from. So I went into the, the house I bought, I went into it with a 25-year mortgage in, in mind. You know, that was my my mindset. And how, once sorry, we, how long have you been at your home? Just to give our listeners a little bit uh, of perspective. 20 years. Okay. So I went in with a, with a 25-year mortgage. That was my, my going in plan. I mean, I bought the house based on uh, mortgage payments that would fit into a 25-year amortization. And once I started going with that, I, you know, I, I think we, we, three years in, we re- renewed our mortgage and we realized, you know what, I think we could ramp this up a bit. You know, we, we didn't succumb to lifestyle inflation, so we didn't overtax our, our we, we weren't completely tapped out. And the other thing is we didn't, we didn't take all the money the bank was loaning us. You know, the, the, the amount of money the bank would approve me for, I wasn't interested in all of that money. That That's... That's just enough, just about enough money to hang yourself. We, we bought well within our price range, and by very conservative people, we you know you until you live with a mortgage payment, you really don't know what you have because you got you know the utility bills and the taxes. You until those bills actually come in and you live with them for a period of time, you're really you're speculating whether you know you can do this or not. So we we went in with a 25 year plan. You know we we were comfortable with the 25. Uh, 25-year um, am- amortization and, and the payment that derived. And then we renewed after three years. We had a three-year term. And we looked at it and said, you know what? I, I think we can, you know, we can afford to put a little bit more toward this because we, we did have this early financial independence aspiration. And we ramped it up. And, and, and so we actually 
shortened our amortization after three years and upped our payments. And then every time our mortgage comes for renewal, we just kept shortening the amortization. So we kind of stumbled into a 15-year mortgage. It wasn't the going-in plan. But looking back, connecting the dots, I wish it was our going-in plan because we would have, you know, we would have... It, it, we would have ended up in the same place, but I think we would have went ended up more systematically. So, so let me get this straight. So you bought a home that was so within your means that it essentially was this this 15-year mortgage from the beginning. So, I, I mean, can you give us maybe a percentage of how, if 100% was maybe your max capacity that the bank would allow you to borrow, where were you about? How, how below your means was it? Yeah, we probably took about, uh, I'm going to say maybe 75% of the amount we were approved for, you know, that whatever the, the bank approved us, we, we, we took 75% of that uh, as a mortgage. So it, it was, you know, it wasn't half or anything, but it, it was well below what the bank was offering. So we're going to talk later on about strategies to amp up your payments and how to actually pay that mortgage off in 15 years. But before we even get to that, I want to ask a few more questions and then uh, slowly ease into that. So just jumping down. So Trevor, our podcast is about financial independence through deliberate lifestyle choices. I say that every single episode at the beginning of the episode, but is, is this one of those lifestyle choices, uh, having a 15-year mortgage, or is it just another decision? Well, no, it's it's de- it's a significant lifestyle choice. If you think, if you buy more house than you need, you know, a bigger house or a fancier house than you need, that excess house is pure lifestyle expense. It is, you know, I don't think you should, you know, your house shouldn't be bursting at the seams with, with you know, your kids all in one, you know, for my family, each, each of my children had their own bedroom. I don't know that that was a requirement. I know growing up, me and my brother shared a bedroom and we made out quite fine. So, um, I, I think, I think people tend to buy more house, maybe the mindset's just in case we need it, you know, just in case we have more kids, just in case, you know, it is expensive to, buy too small of a house, sell it, and then buy a larger house. You know, the, the transaction costs in real estate can be expensive. So I get where people caution on on too much house. But when you stand back, when I stand back now, when I look at, you know, I bought the house, I raised a family, now I'm an empty nester, and I have all this excess space. And I I, I don't think I overbought, but when I look at the amount of t- the, the, the amount of time that I needed that, all that space, when my family was young, it turns out it's a really small window of time in the whole scheme of things. You know, it's really, uh, I mean, when I was living in it, it seemed like it would, you know, it didn't seem that, but when, when I connect the dots and I look back, the time that I needed this extremely large home, the window was really small. So I would, I would caution people, you know, know that if you buy too much house, you've, you've made a lifestyle decision. I hate to talk about people, but I, I know a couple, just it's a husband and wife, so just two people. They, li- they live in a, a th- it's at least a 3,000 square foot home with four bedrooms. I don't know that there's any kids on the horizon. You know, they're, they're of the age where they could still have kids, but they haven't talked about it. So those people have way too much house as far as I'm concerned. Now, maybe at some point in the future, you know, they're going to fill that house up, but just know that if you if you if you err on the side of caution, you buy too much house. It it is in essence a lifestyle decision and a lifestyle expense. Before I ask a follow up question about that, I I, I just want to ask a question pertaining to how significant this topic is. I mean, it, I, we all know we talk about this on essentially every episode that the house, housing costs are the largest expense will ever occur. But how significant is this decision that you're making when you head into the housing market. I mean, it sounds like you and your wife were able to really make things into the best by turning this 25 year mortgage into a 15, but how how much thought and and time should you place into this decision because again, we we know it's a big one. You know, so cars and houses are the two things that are going to typically make or break you financially because they're the the two most significant purchases you'll make. The problem is a is a car you buy multiple cars over your lifetime and 
if you make a mistake on your first car and you you know you bought more car than you needed and you 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 could correct that the next time you buy a car but typically you buy maybe one or two houses in your lifetime and the interest associated with with a mortgage is is, is astronomical but once you you sort of make that commitment to buy that house it's i'm not saying it's irreversible but people tend to not reverse those bad decisions or correct them going forward until maybe they retire so you're talking you know maybe half you know a, a huge chunk of your life is tied up in that housing decision for a, typically a long period of time i want to jump now into uh, kind of the section where we talk about before we even buy a home. So just that period where we're thinking about buying a home. So my first question within this section is, how do you know if you're even ready to buy a home? I mean, I'm not talking emotionally and that you want to have a home in your life and you you want to be a homeowner. I'm talking financially. How do you how do you know? What are, what are some signs that you can look for in your life? Well, one of the things is is you need a significant down payment. When I say significant you need the 20% down to avoid the CMHC insurance. And that insurance isn't for you. It's for the people lending you the money. So to avoid that cost, you know, in the eyes of the financial institutions, that's when you're sort of, you're in, and you're sort of all in on the, on the house purchase. Can, and the other thing, I, just, I just want to stop you there. Can you go back and just explain that acronym you just threw out there and, and what the 20% means? It's Canada House and Mortgaging Corporation Insurance. And if you put down less than 20%, uh, if, you, if you buy a property and you have less than 20% down payment, meaning you have to borrow more than 80% of the appraised value of that piece of real estate, you're required to buy insurance that protects the lender in the case that you default on your loan, meaning you don't make your payments. So it's it's a, it's a government-required insurance policy. So you need to have enough of a down payment to avoid that insurance cost. And to my mind, that's when you're ready to buy a house with a 15-year mortgage in mind. How, so, how significant is that insurance cost? I mean, is it is it, are we talking pennies or is that a, going to be a significant amount? It's a percentage of the, the property value, I believe. It's been a while since uh, I've bought a house, but I, I've never paid that. So I, I don't I don't know the particulars of it. I I know I wanted to avoid it, so I knew enough about it to know I don't want to go there. So it was—it seemed significant enough to to concern me at the time, and this is going back twenty years ago. So I, I'm sure the 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 cost has has maybe changed, even maybe the the rules around the program have changed. But I know it still exists. Are there any other things that uh, that that really sign to you that you are ready to buy a home, other than maybe that twenty percent down? Well, I'll say if you're able to save up twenty percent to put down as a as a down payment on a, on a, on a home, that says that you have the discipline to, to you know to to carry through in my mind to follow this through. So, saving up the down payment it serves a purpose. It reduces the amount of money you're going to borrow, but it also builds up your confidence that you you're capable of living within your means or below your means, and able to to save that. So. You've demonstrated to yourself and obviously to the bank that you're somewhat responsible with money because you're able to save up this significant down payment. So I, I think that's the biggest test is are you ready to buy a home if you can come up with a down payment? I want to ask about having a job. So job security, I mean, we, we've done an episode on how part-time and casual jobs are really flooding the job market. So where does having a stable job and income come into the equation? Well, if if you don't have a sort of a, a if you haven't held a job for a, a long period of time, say eight or ten years, the bank may want a letter from your employer saying that your your employment is somewhat stable. But for my own security, I I would want if I wasn't if I was in a line of work where or worked for a company that didn't appear too stable, I'd want to know that I had marketable skills and I could you know replace that income without too much stress. So that that would be a for my own personal comfort. If if I were employed somewhere that you know either my employment there was in question or the company's solvency was in question, at least I, I had marketable skills that I, I felt I could replace that income with another job 
fairly easily. Also, two incomes is also a great uh, a safety cushion for um, having a mortgage. You know, it, it, the chances of if both people losing their job at the same time is highly unlikely. In your years of living, do you have you found that individuals are kind of antsy to jump into being a homeowner where they maybe should have waited a few more years to get all these variables in line before purchasing a home? Well, in this crazy real estate market we've, we've just sort of, I'll say, gone through, it's kind of softening now, there's this panic buying in, that was going on where people would, you know, if I don't get in now, I'll never afford to get in. You know, that was the mentality. And that that just drives prices up even more radically. I, I think... Again, 20% down, that's when you're ready. You know, if you have 20% down, if you're able to save up that money and not require it in any other aspect of your life, obviously, if you saved it up, you didn't, then you're, you're probably, it, it's a great wealth building tool in that real estate appreciates, you know, not at a crazy amount, but there's peaks and valleys, but it, it's a, it's a, I call it forced savings. So paying back your mortgage is in essence forcing you to save that money because you're putting it into your house, which is equity. So it's a great tool if you maybe lack some discipline on on saving money. It's a forced savings to pay back that mortgage. And then you have this great asset that's, you know, you could maybe downsize and, and, and recoup some of that money and live off it in your retirement. So still within the section of before you even buy a home, so that period where you're looking at a home. So we let's talk about the actual process of going house shopping and having that 15-year mortgage in mind. So it, it sounds like from you and your wife, you, you were trying to look for a home that was within your means, but again, you weren't necessarily thinking about that 15-year mortgage. Yeah, we, we weren't, and I wish we would have. I think we may have bought the same house. Obviously, we were able to pay it off in, the, in that period of time. But if you go, again, you have to be, remember those three criteria I mentioned. They have to be in place because you, you don't want to be all in on your mortgage and just completely disregard retirement savings because that, that that won't end well either. But I, I think you're, if you're going with a 15-year mortgage, obviously the pay, that's going to make the payment larger. And I, I think it will, you know, you'll you'll tend to, the, the worst thing to do is is to go look at houses beyond your price range because the houses in your price range, they, they look very inferior. So I, I think if you went with a 15-year mortgage mindset, you you would, you know, avoid the, the distraction of looking at houses outside of your price range and being disappointed with the house you end up choosing. So I, I think having the 15-year mortgage is your going in plan. You'll be shopping for the the houses in the in the right price range and this is only from my experience of watching um the house house hunting shows on home and garden television but it, on those shows the real estate agents always push the home buyers to maybe look outside their their price range so i really brought like that you brought up the point of sticking within your price tag because i i think that is maybe something that's so easy to fall victim to because of course more expensive homes are going to look more aesthetically pleasing you know i must admit i i've watched a couple episodes of that just for curiosity and people find that entertaining for me that that's a it's it, it's a scary movie i'm watching you know it's frightening <laughs> i really is i'm terrified for these people when i'm watching it cuz they're just being played like like puppets so I think that that whole show is is just it's horrible. I can almost hear you gasping and and fear as these as these I couples do. make decisions. I'm saying, I'm saying don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> I'm screaming at the TV. Don't so. go there. And I said I watched a couple episodes. I can't watch anymore. It's just it's just excruciating for me to see that. I bet you had nightmares for weeks after waking up in cold sweats. So let, let, let's talk about that, that we, we kind of talked about the concept of perfection and, and that when you're making, buying a home is a huge decision and that you, and, and if any of our listeners tuned in for uh, the episode where Trevor was talking about his crazy expensive VCR, I mean, you put hours of research into that and you wanted this perfect VCR that was going to last forever. So, I mean, if you put that much effort into searching for a VCR that's going to last for X number of years, it's it's almost 
expected that you would want this perfect home because again, you might own it for 25, 30 years. You know, the funny thing with house shopping is, so if if I'm buying a car, you described the VCR. For the car, I might go test drive it three or four times before I make a final decision. Even then I might take it to a a professional like mechanic to look at it. But when, when people buy houses, a lot of times they'll, They'll go look at it in the evening, so it's dark out, and they'll they'll walk through it, you know, once, maybe twice, depending on the real estate market you're in. You might only get one chance to to see it, and they'll put an offer of you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on a house they they really don't know that well. So house shopping is you almost can't compare it to any other kind of shopping, just because of its nature. But if you find a home, pretend it's your dream home, it has has everything you've ever wanted in a home, but it's a little bit over your price tag and maybe it'll take 25 years to pay off. We'll say it, it will for sure take 25 years to pay off, but it has everything that you'd ever wanted. It's quote unquote your dream home. Is it worth it? It, it is, but you have to know that you have made a lifestyle decision, not not a, uh, not a deliberate decision decision leading you toward financial independence you have made and you said it's a dream home it's everything you wanted how many times you know to get everything you wanted you're it's going to require a sacrifice and that that could be an extra 10 years of mortgage payments i want to bring up the house first home debate can can you kind of explain what that concept is to our listeners who who maybe haven't heard that differentiation before between a house and a home well, I think a house, a house is and, typically... And I'm, only, and I'm only bringing this up because I think uh, the house versus home concept plays nicely into finding this dream home. Yes. So a house to me is is a, it, it's an investment. It is a, uh, a, a something you want to go up in value. It is, it's maybe uh, a status symbol. It's, it's something you are in... in you know, investing money into constantly, I'll say. Where, where a home is more a place that you feel safe, comfortable, and and relaxed. So you could have a home, you know, that you that all those things are present. You're you're safe, you're comfortable, uh, you feel secure. It doesn't have to be uh, made with granite countertops and hardwood floors to to achieve that. So. Uh, it, it could be a dilapidated, rundown uh, building, but if you feel comfortable and safe in it, it's a home. So, Courtney, what's your sort of feel about a house and a home? When I think about the concept of a home, I almost think about when you rent a place or when you're staying at a cottage for a few weeks and that... Uh, Whenever you maybe, if anyone's ever rented, I mean, every I'm I've I've been a student for the past four years, so I I've obviously rented a few different places, and every time I move into a new rental place that I'm living at, it never feels as quite homey as the last place. I mean, it takes a few months, a few weeks before it really starts feeling like my own, and then I start loving it. And anyone who's visited a cottage, maybe a rental cottage, I mean when you first show up, it's it's probably maybe not that glamorous and maybe it feels a little bit it just it's just not that kind of hominess you're you're used to but i the longer you stay there you, you kind of start loving it and falling in love with it and i think that same kind of feeling can be possible when it comes to the house versus home debate so you're saying you you will warm up to whatever you live in you'll you it, it will just become home and you'll become comfortable exactly and i that's exactly that's exactly it Trevor, you kind of touched on before the the whole kind of oh, living in a big city and how high prices are more expensive there. So I'm going to throw it back at you. What if, I mean, this is a listener, pretend this is a listener question. What if I live in a big city and housing prices are super expensive? What are you going to say to that listener? Well, I would spin it back and say, you know, do you really have to live in that expensive city like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal? Do you really need to live there or are you living there as a choice? Again, if that's a deliberate choice you've made, that becomes a lifestyle decision because that's the most expensive place to to live in Canada would be uh, Toronto or Vancouver. So, but if your job requires you to live there, I mean, if that's the only place your particular education or your skill set can get employed, then well, then then I I don't think a fifteen year mortgage is on the table for you. 
chances are for for the average person making the sort of the average income. But I I just would ask the per that person, do you really, really need to be in that expensive city? And I think there needs to be emphasis on that really, really part of what you just said because anyone could say, oh, I love living in the biggest city in Canada. I, I, it's it's gorgeous. It has lots to do. But I think, I think it takes a lot to sit back and actually ask yourself, do I really need to be here? But at, at the same time, we can also spin the other way saying that, again, it, we all know that cities have the most areas of employment. And if you were ever laid off or, or let go of your job, living in a city would be so beneficial because you wouldn't have to operate your family because you'd already have other job prospects. Yeah, it's funny. Security is a, a very expensive illusion. You know, you, you what you just said, there, if you ever lost your job, well, there's, although there's a lot of jobs in the, in Toronto, say, there's also a lot of people looking for those jobs in Toronto. So your competition is, is just as great as the number of jobs. So it's out where I live, I, I'm an accountant and maybe an accountant's job might come up once a year, but when it does, I'm probably the most qualified candidate in this whole town for that job. So, so I, I have almost no competition. So it's, you know, but I I could lose my job, and, and and for two years, an accountant's job may not come up. But but when it does, I'm I'm probably the number one candidate. And I don't think you, you could rarely say that in in a in a city of of over a million people. When you had a young family and were and and your kids were in school, did that not add stress to your life that you had to stay employed within that small town where job prospects were scarce? Well. The chances of if so, as you say, you have a, a two two income household. The chances of, of both people losing their jobs is is highly unlikely. And this is where, if you signed up for a fifteen year mortgage, and somebody loses their job out of the out of the house, then you could renew your mortgage at a twenty five year AM, and, and all of a sudden you've built you've got this built in cushion. So, but by not taking you know, a hundred percent of the money the bank was offering to loan me, I took I took quite a bit less. I, I've created this safety cushion. You know, again, you you look for safety in managing your expenses, not your income. I mean that that is where safe. You know, I see safety as an expensive illusion. It, your greatest safety net is in managing your expenses, not your income. We kind of touched on it before, but if we focused, can we focus too much on? buying a small home and being frugal. I mean, where where should you draw the line before you and your family are living in this tiny shoebox of a home? Yeah, like I said earlier, the the cost of of buying and selling real estate, the transaction cost, you know, the land transfer tax, the uh, real estate commission, the moving cost if you hire movers, and then you you get into the new house, you got, you know, curtains and redecorating and maybe some repairs you didn't anticipate. The cost of moving is very expensive and you want to keep that to a minimum. I, I think if you moved, if you lived in three houses over the span of your lifetime, uh, that's probably the, the most. You'd, 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 that, that's, to me, that's a lot. You know, that I wouldn't want to move more than three times. The cost becomes, you know, astronomical when you start adding it up. So, so I, I mean, if you bought a starter home and, and you you know you say you were planning on having one kid and you end up having three and you have to move for that reason um so you've you made you've made a i'll call it a mistake or you you've changed your your path and you have to you you have to have i guess a plan when you have a 15 year mortgage you have to go in with a pretty solid plan of what you how how you see your life unfolding to some degree but you know life happens things happen and Sometimes you might end up with in-laws living with you and, and, and all sorts of things happen and, and you might have to move for those reasons. So I, people move for different reasons, but I think if you moved over three times over the course of your lifetime, that's not excessive. And, and that, that's your adult lifetime, right? Oh, yeah. It, well, it's your kid. It's not costing you anything to move, right? It's your parents that are <laughs> paying those bills. Can you talk about the concept of being house poor and, and how does that impact a 15-year mortgage? Well, if you buy too much house and your mortgage payment and your taxes and your utilities are eating up all your income, 
That's what I call house poor. You, you, you've literally got no wiggle room. So, you know, if, if something broke down in your house, you needed a new furniture, uh, you needed a new furnace, you're, there's, there's no excess, there's no extra money to cover that. You're actually going to use your credit card and, 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 or, or home equity line of credit or whatever to, to put a new furnace in. And then your mortgage just got bigger. Uh, being house poor is when you buy more house than you can afford and, and you have no wiggle room for, for when life happens. Almost like you're living life at the max, like you've mastered a credit card and, and that's it. Well, in the example is it just say one. So, you know, you mentioned if you lose a job, you know, what then? So we, we had a 15 year mortgage. I was working full time. My wife was a stay at home mom. So, but, but she's educated and has a skill set and, and very employable. So if I lost my job and just say I couldn't find one, then, then my wife has these marketable skills. She could actually go out and get a job, you know, to sort of in the interim, and I could be looking after the kids. So, but when you've maxed out all your income to cover your expenses, and and we talked about you know living within your means, and that's that sounds great, but when something goes wrong, like someone loses a job, it, it all falls apart. So living below your, we were living well below our means, and again, that's your safety cushion you know, managing your expenses. So not only were you working to pay off this 15-year mortgage, but your single house income with this little extra kind of jet pack strapped to your back where your wife could also contribute to paying off, off the mortgage, off uh, the off bills, and, and just contribute income to the family. Yeah, and you know, not to get sidetracked, but when you live below your means, you, you tend to, you know... When you're at work, you're, things don't stress you out as much, you know, because it, it, if if you were to get fired for, you know, maybe speaking out at work or, or you know, not disagreeing with somebody too many times, that, you know, that could be catastrophic. But when you have this, you know, safety net, you tend to perform, you know, I'll say more open-minded on your job and in all facets of your life. So it, you know, a 15-year mortgage gives you this this, this cushion because you could always expand it into a 25 if, if, if the need arose, right? So you've, you've got this, this, this safety cushion that you could, you could pull this parachute at any moment when you needed it. Before we go any further, I just want to address our skeptical listener question that, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's hard not to think this way, but uh, the skeptical listener question is, but what if Traver makes crazy amount of money and that's why this all 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 happened that's why he was able to pay off his 15-year mortgage that's why maybe I mean I this was a sidetracked point but why he lives in a single income family Uh, can you talk to maybe how how that is valid or invalid I would say it's invalid I I I do okay but I'm not I'm not uh you know in the doctor lawyer type of uh incomes so I think I make an, an average income and we just manage our expenses really well. We always have. And that to me is the, the key is, is just managing your expenses. You know, knowing, again, a documented budget would, would answer most people's questions. You know, can I do this? Can I not do this? And it just, just knowing the numbers all the time, that, that's the key. So again, it's, it's about the expenses, not about the income. Yes, it, it always is. You have far more control over your expenses in life than you do your income. I mean, there's things you can do to boost your income. You can, you know, upgrade your skills, you know, maybe educate yourself and go into a different career path. Oh, those things take time. And there's somewhat, you know, a promotion, you know, you could work really hard and still not get that promotion. So, you know, the things you do to, to increase your income come with some un- uncertainty, you know, they're not for sure. But if you cancel your cable bill that's a certainty you know if you sell your your $65,000 truck and, and you buy a used car you know that that cost reduction is a certainty you know that's that's a for sure not a maybe you know that's that's money you can count on and I before we move on I do want to highlight that it, never once have you mentioned the square footage of your home so the way that you were able to live your life and pay off your mortgage in 15 years is all just kind of on this this scale where 
where the this could be possible regardless of how what your income was it's just about again the expense side of the equation you're just buying a house you can afford and, and living below your means i mean it's a pretty easy formula in my mind Let's talk about the concept of lifestyle inflation. I mean, we had a whole episode on this, but can you talk directly about how lifestyle inflation comes into play when we're talking about a 15-year mortgage? So just say you, you end up with a, you, you, you get a mortgage and say it's a three-year mortgage, and then at the end of three years, you, you renew your mortgage. And, and what a lot of people do is over the, that course of those three or maybe it's a five-year mortgage, your lifestyle starts to inflate. You know, you, you buy a new car, you um, put your kids in expensive activities. Maybe you buy a, an ATV and a skidoo for the winter. And you go on some vacations and you start racking up some debt. And then your mortgage comes up from renewal. And say you've got all these credit card bills. You, you could just roll them into your mortgage. And then now your mortgage is bigger, but you can spread it. So if it, you had a 25-year a a mortgage, the end of five years, now, now you should have 20 years left but you rolled all this debt into your mortgage when you were renewing it and you spread it over another 25 years. So now that mortgage is in total, it's now 30 years long and it's, it's any equity you would have paid off, you eaten away by rolling in your credit card debt. And then you get, you, you go over another five years and the same things, you know, the same things occur. You buy a new car, you go on vacations and kids activities get more expensive and you incur more debt and you roll that debt into your next renewal and, and you put it over another 25 years. And now you got a 35-year mortgage you're working with, right, since, since, since you bought the house. And so lifestyle inflation tends to, you know, the, your mortgage tends to be an outlet for your lifestyle inflation for a lot of people. That sounds like definitely a vicious cycle that, I mean, it's all too easily to fall into it. It sounds like it does take a lot of self-determination, self-restraint, and confidence in your abilities to... N- to live within your means and not inflate your lifestyle. You know, the terminology people use, it's called debt consolidation. And the debt consolidation is you take all your your little debts you've built up over the period of, say, five years, and you consolidate that all in your mortgage, where the interest rate, you know, the math says it makes sense because the interest rate is lower and and it's spread over 25 years. So, you know, all those Christmas presents you bought that you couldn't afford, guess what? You're financing them over 25 years. You know, so and so all those consumer electronics that you're going to be throwing away in five years, you'll be paying for 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 like forever. So it's 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 worse than a vicious cycle. It's it's actually a a a dive off of a cliff. You know, I I don't even know how to describe it, It, but it it happens and people think, okay, if, if I do this debt consolidation, I will change my behavior and I'll never do this again. And then lifestyle inflation starts to unfold again. So it it, it really is a, a horrible place to be. And just to backtrack, when you said interest rates are lower, you were referring to interest rates being lower on your mortgage as opposed to credit consumer credit cards. Yes. And, and the other thing is when you consolidate your debts to your mortgage, you're taking an unsecured loan. So, uh, you know, you've got a credit card debt. So that's basically unsecured debt. And when you consolidate it in your mortgage, it becomes secured. You know, you, your house is collateral for that debt now. So if you were to default, the bank could take your house. Whereas when it was credit card debt, it was unsecured debt, meaning if you didn't pay your credit card bills, well, the worst they could do is, is you know, decline your credit card. So it, 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 it's actually worse than, than, than it sounds on the surface. My next question is that if houses are such great wealth building tools, wouldn't it make sense to buy as much house as you can? I mean, doesn't that reason check? Well, it, it it's it's a great wealth building tool in that if if you look at uh, the return on investment in real estate. Now, I'm not talking about Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Calgary, the big cities, but just generally speaking, in you know Canada's average town. The an equity market generally does a little bit better than the real estate market. So it, now there's a lot more peaks and valleys in those type of investments, but it generally performs better than real estate. And in terms of building wealth, your house is just a house. It's not an investment, and it doesn't belong on your net worth balance sheet 
unless you plan to sell it because when it's a house, all you can do is live in it. You can't tap into its value unless you do something like a reverse mortgage. But generally speaking, unless you're downsizing or doing something with your house, it is not uh, uh, something you can live off of. Uh, well, I guess you could, unless you rent it out. I mean, there's a lot of things yeah, I guess you could do, but for the average person, a house is just a house until you sell it. And then now we're talking an investment, you know, and depending what you do with your housing, you know, if you downsize, then obviously part of that becomes, but so I'm saying, should you buy more house? Well, maybe there's other things you can do with your money. You know, if, what if you bought just enough house and you invested the, you know, the difference into an index fund, you know, over the same period of time, w- would your money do better? Well, again, in this podcast, we don't pretend to be investment experts, but I think it's possible. I think you, you, you might do better. So I, I think it's a great wealth building tool in terms of, uh, you know, forced savings that we talked about, but you could probably do better than buying a, a bigger house in terms of investments. Do you have any final considerations that you should consider before you even buy a home? I, I think you should just know, before you go in, just know that you're, whether you're seeking fin- early financial independence. You know, if that's on the table, if, if even if it's a remote possibility, something you're contemplating, I, I, you got to really think about a 15-year mortgage with as a, as a going in plan. I, I, it, it makes... It makes everything else kind of fall in place. So, Courtney, is there anything you would take into consideration before buying a home, not being a homeowner currently, but somebody who, who might be thinking about it in the future? Yeah, I, I, I do want to add that, I mean, we know many people go into buying a home with a 25-year plan in, in in their mind. But, and and I find it crazy that when you're looking for a home, it's almost automatic to think about a house in terms of the monthly payments. I mean, and that's really what I gathered from from doing research for this episode. Almost like the way you would think about buying a car and that you just look at the monthly payments of, oh, can I afford this car due to with, with paying X amount of dollars a month? But I really just think it's important to think about the overall price tags. And so not in terms of monthly payments, but in terms of the actual principal amount and then the accrued interest that will, will come with that. Well, so many people look at it and say, can I afford this? And they're really saying, can I afford these payments, right? And that, that's the, the, they didn't finish the sentence, can I afford these payments? But can I afford this? It's really a bigger question. You know, I, at the end of the day, I have to pay for this whole car or this whole house is that where I really want to put my money? You know, it, it went, can I afford it? It's do I want to afford it? Do I want to afford all of that expense? Not will that monthly payment fit into my budget? You know, that you really, you have to ask the overarching question. Is that where I want my money to go? I want to sidetrack for uh, just a minute here and and just ask you why why do people or, or why is it more automatic to to think about the amount of money we'll pay in little chunks is it is it just because it's too scary uh, to face the music and and look at the the overall amount when when we go to purchase something i mean even look at home furniture stores the amount that you can everything is is paying chunks or, or pay a year later why why is it just a challenging concept well i think it a lot of it's marketing so people selling things, they, they understand that we're being paid not in lump sums. Like we don't get paid once a year. We get paid in incremental amounts every, every week, every two weeks. Some people get paid every month. And so if you're trying to market to people, you need to market to them in a language they understand. And so they understand, you know, generally speaking, monthly, you know, that, that that's something they can relate to. A lot of people, they don't know how much they spend a year in cable for cable TV. But if you said, Hey, uh, do you want cable TV? It's, it's, uh, $2,500 a year. People say, I, I, I'm not paying for that, but maybe they do when they add up each monthly bill. Actually, that's a little high, but, um, but you, you know what I mean? So I, I think a lot of it is marketing, particularly when it comes to cars. You know, I see these, I walk by this car a lot all the time. Me and my wife go for a walk and it has by, by, bi-monthly payment, you know, on the windshield of the car. Oh, that's going to look really low. And I, I it does. And I, I doubt 
you know, they offer financing in the form of bi-monthly payments. You know, I'm sure it's a monthly payment. They're just trying to, I also see cars advertised with weekly payments and it's whatever they can do to, to market the number as small as possible. And so I think they're just playing with people's minds. So Trevor, we're about halfway through this episode and we've, we've got a lot left to touch on. So I think, uh, I think to our listeners as well, we're going to pick this episode up next week. We'll have a part two, but in this episode, just to recap, we covered, we covered kind of the basics of, of buying a home and in considerations to really think about before you even buy a home. But next week we're going to talk about how realistic it is to actually pay off your mortgage in 15 years. And does that work for everyone? We're also going to talk about things to consider when getting into a mortgage and maybe when it is and is not realistic to pay off your mortgage in 15 years. So the reasons why it's maybe not a good idea. So we're going to get into all of that next week, but we're also going to get into the how-tos as well. And, and Trevor, we usually don't do the how-tos, but why do you, why are they important for this episode? Well, because it's such a long journey. Even a 15-year mortgage is a long journey. And it's important to stay motivated and, and know the, the tricks and the tools and the, the strategies to get there. So that brings us to the end of part one of our two-part series on 15-year mortgage. Trevor and I just like to talk a lot. So this uh, this episode is being stretched into two episodes, but we'll, uh, we'll see you back here next week to wrap this episode up. Thanks so much for tuning in and being a part of our Simple Money Solutions journey. We will see you back here next week. Until then, keep it simple.